welcome to this week's Notes on Leadership, where we delve deep into the backstories of the leaders of today to work out what it was in their past that makes them so good at what they do. We also incorporate some of our guests' favourite musical memories, four songs which have helped create the soundtrack to their life. My co-presenter, as always, is the brilliant leadership coach, Kristen Berry. How are you today, Kristen? Hi, Carrie. I'm doing great and so excited for today's interview. Well, yes, you have to be, because my guest today is Dr. James Berry. Yes, he does have the same surname as Kristen, because indeed, they are related. We are, in fact, chatting to Kristen's brother, who is a leading neurologist at Mass General Hospital. James's focus is care and research for ALS, which is also known as Lou Gehrig or Motor Neurone Disease. And over the last decade, his team has grown from 15 to 20 people to over 140 today. And in the last year alone, a challenging time for all of us, of course, no less than 60 people were hired. James's mantra is, on a good day, everyone is there for you. On a bad day, family is there for you. James, welcome. How are you? I'm doing really well. I'm excited to be here. Thank you for having me. A pleasure. And how do you feel about being interviewed by your sister? Oh, I'm so excited about this. It's great. <laughs> Kristen, I've got to ask the same question. How do you feel about interviewing your brother? I'm so excited because I get to ask him all these things that, that were occurring to me and, and I get to put him on the spot. Exactly. He can't get out of it, can he? And I've got to ask you, James, firstly, does Kristen adhere to your mantra? Has she been there for you on those bad days? Yeah, always. You had always. to say that. <laughs> I was like, uh-oh. <laughs> Um, and obviously, I had Kristen as my lead researcher uh, this week, and she tells me that one of your overriding traits is modesty. Would you agree to that? Uh, I, uh, maybe. <laughs> I think I am modest. <laughs> Humility, yes. How do you then tell people about all the incredible things that you've achieved? Yeah, I have to tell you, it's it's. I'm I'm trying to overcome that modesty to to a degree to to an, and to a big enough a degree that I can at least. Um, you know, take credit for some of the things that we do. I, I, I have a wonderful team and I get to brag about them all the time. And I think that's, that's the way I do it. Well, we're going to help you do that today. Uh, Don't worry, because you have achieved so much on a professional level, starting as a science teacher, retraining as a doctor, conducting clinical research. You have two fellowships. You head up a team of 140 people, as we've said, among many, many other accolades. What, James, then, would you say drives you forward? You know, I think I'm really driven now in my work by by the very fundamental mission of trying to find cures for people with ALS and um, and and to treat them along the way I, that's really what I go to bed thinking about and what I wake up thinking about when it comes to work and it, it's very motivating to me I can imagine and where would you say we are with regards to finding a cure for ALS look it's a it's a big mountain decline um, and you know I think that's true for for many diseases, certainly neurodegenerative diseases, so Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, Huntington's, ALS are, are a group. These are these are difficult diseases to find a treatment for. But I think that only really means that we need to redouble our effort. We have had, actually, within the last couple of years, we've had uh, new therapies have positive results in trials. Um, and if you think about the this is sort of the timeline of, of ALS, we had one treatment that was discovered in 1995 a second effective treatment that was discovered in 2017. And then we had a third positive trial just two years ago. So the pace is picking up and we have more and more trials going on now. So more and more in the pipeline. I recognize there are many challenges in clinical trials, but I'd imagine one of the most frustrating is getting quick approvals, given that ALS patients tend to have little time to wait. 
Yeah. Time is definitely one of those, you know, time, time works against us, but, but our solution is to work as quickly as we can. So one of our big projects that we're working on now is called the platform trial, which sort of takes a regular trial and reshapes it instead of testing one drug and against placebo at a time, we can now test four or five drugs against placebo, bring some efficiency to the whole operation and, and get to answers faster. And then I think the regulatory timeline, actually, there's been a huge amount of work on from, from the population of people with ALS and their loved ones in concert with scientists um, and to work with agencies in the U.S. and around the world to try to bring faster um, approval timelines once we find a positive drug. Sure. I'm going to talk a bit about you now, James. And you didn't go to medical school straight from college. Tell us why that was. Uh, well, I didn't know I wanted to go to medical school after college. I, I, I um, actually took a job teaching with a program here in the U.S. called Teach for America. And the premise behind Teach for America uh, was that um, there, were, there was a, a big need for teachers in certain areas in the U.S., both rural and, and urban. Uh, and there were motivated young people who were willing to teach but needed some direction and, and would take those spots. And, and that was the program I joined. And I felt really inspired by by the premise of the program. And so was there a seminal moment then when you knew that working in medicine was going to be your vocation? I taught for three years and I loved teaching. And I think um, there were there were parts of teaching that were really, really rewarding to me, working with the kids one on one, working with families, um, I'm really sort of helping the kids through through tough times. And there were things about it that were harder for me. I, classroom management piece of it I saw teachers who did that really really well and I admired that but I didn't think I was particularly good at it nor was that the thing that really brought me joy and so I thought well I'd like to work with people in a different kind of venue and then I had a student actually who um, developed cancer and I would take her um, I would take her books I didn't. <laughs> I was a science teacher. I didn't take her science books to read in the hospital, but I took, I took her science fiction, and you know, I really thought that's something I could do and feel really good about. And so I applied to medical school. And why did urology appeal to you? Yeah, I mean, some people know when they go. I mean, some people seem to be born knowing that they're going to be a neurologist when they grow up, and I was not like that. I, you know, I went to medical school, and I. I didn't know much of anything about how how physicians worked or really even what they did or what the landscape was going to be. So I had to learn all of that. I knew why I wanted to be there, but I wasn't sure exactly how the rest of it would fit together. And um, I think I really found that neurology was this mix of, first of all, neurology is the study of the brain and the spinal cord and the nerves. And when things go wrong with the brain and the spinal cord and the nerves, um, it's it has a huge impact on people. And it's also incredibly fascinating the way that you you get an insight into these really amazing organs that we have it's very different than having belly pain or chest pain and i found that really incredible but i also thought that there was um we were on the cusp of discovering a lot in neurology there was still a lot that we didn't know and a lot that we were just on the cusp of discovering and that was really exciting to me I can imagine. Now, today, of course, it's not about uh, just your backstory. It's also about your music. How are you feeling about telling the world about your musical tastes? Nervous. I think it's... <laughs> I'm, I'm always sort of nervous when I'm listening to music on, on headphones, for example, that 
someone will find out what I'm listening to and not like that or ask me why I like that or and uh, and I'd have to defend it. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I'm going to put you on the spot then. Tell us about your first song choice. Yeah, the first song is um, by Prince. It's Purple Rain, which is the, the off of the, the first album that I ever bought. My grandmother was babysitting for us while my mom was out of town and I convinced her to take me to the record store and allow me to buy one, I think I bought it on a, a cassette tape, uh, one cassette tape and it was Purple Rain and I was in fourth or fifth grade. And ever since then, this has been, um, it's just a masterpiece of music. And um, it's something I reach for when I need motivation, when I need um, to get excited to do something. I just think it's just beautiful. And that was Prince with Purple Rain. And our guest on Notes on Leadership today is neurologist Dr. James Berry. And James, you were born in Aurora, Illinois. And I discovered that Aurora has been ranked as one of the best cities in the States to live the American dream. What would you say the American dream is nowadays? You know, I think I think it's really changing from this when we think when I think of the American dream, I think of this sort of nineteen fifties cookie cutter, you know. Uh, life that that quote unquote everyone aspires to, and I, I think that's really changed into uh, a dream of being able to be oneself and and to develop your own life plan and pursue that. And I think that the fact that that can look really different for different people is is kind of what's becoming the American dream. Mm. Would you say you've achieved that? I sure have, but I. I, I, I've achieved it up to here, but I, I also feel like there's a lot more dreaming to be done. And, and I, you know, one of the things that's exciting is you just don't know exactly what's coming next. Yeah, it's a great position to be in. How do you look back at your childhood? And what are your standout memories, would you say? I had a terrific childhood. So, you know, growing up in Aurora, we actually lived outside of Aurora. So we were, we were in a, um, I guess, early suburban slash rural area. And, um, you know, there was a lot of sun and fields and lakes and friends and, um, you know, really just a lot of happiness. It was it was very free. You have two sisters. One of them is right beside me, of course, a stepbrother and a stepsister. How would you say the dynamics play out between you all? So Kristen and I are, are closest in age. We're about two years apart. And I think when we were little, we were the closest. And and our little sister, Kate, was uh, four years younger than me. And so she was the little sister. And I think over time, we all became much, much closer. And my, my stepbrother and sister were older than all of us. And so they were out of the house, really, by the time we began living with my, my stepdad. But ever-present and... Um, really nice to have this other kind of group of people that we that we can get together with and and reach out to and and share joys with tell me a bit about your parents about their background and and how they met each other well let's see my dad is from salt lake city and um grew up you know very working class went to university of utah and then went to law school at northwestern after the death of his father um which i think was a 
had a big impact on his life, obviously. That was a plane um, crash, right? It was, yeah. Uh, so sudden and, and, you know, I mean, that's difficult. Left him dealing with a lot of, a lot of pain. But, you know, I think has, like, like anybody who loses a parent when they're young, you know, has a, a, a big impact on life, but also, I think, a source of motivation. Um, so he was in law school at Northwestern, and my mom was uh, grew up in Aurora um, and uh, outside of Chicago, and and um, and was teaching in in Chicago. And they met, I think, through a through a friend, and and were married there, and and actually moved to Colorado for a period of time before having kids, but then moved back to Aurora, and uh, and that's where we grew up. What would you say they were like or are like as people and parents? Well, they're, they're wonderful parents. They, they were divorced when we were young, which was, uh, you know, hard for the family, I suppose, harder, probably harder for them than us. They, they did a lot to make it feel uh, as, as okay, as, as safe as, as it could be uh, for us. But they were, and I think they were great parents. I, you know, I, uh, my mom is you know, very loving and protective and really wants the best for us. Uh, in a very um, kind of, in, in a, not in, in a very not cookie cutter way, mm. really, I think wants the best for, for what each of us is as a person. Um, she's the only, you know, I tell this story when I told her I was going to medical school, she cried. She was like, oh, she was so happy. I said, well, no, actually she cried because she said, I, I don't know if doctors are happy. <laughs> <laughs> Just wanting the very best for you, of course. And I mean, that's interesting, right. even though your parents didn't stay together, that you, you still felt very secure growing up. Yeah, I, I did. I mean, and I thought that it, there were some stormy times. I mean, it's a difficult thing to go through. I, I don't think, it, you know, I don't think there was ever a time where they, they created any question about whether we were loved or, or secure or safe or, you know. Mm. And what would you say the most important values that your parents and your step-parents taught you? Um, would you say they are now reflected in your own family setup? I think so. I'm, I, I think they are reflected, and I and I think um, you know I think there are a lot of different perspectives there. I think you know one thing that I think I I learned perhaps directly and perhaps indirectly from my from my parents and my childhood was that there are lots of perspectives to everything that's going on, and that's that serves us well. I think to know that. So I, and I think that. You know, that maybe comes from the hardship they went through with each other and seeing that as a kid and and really them kind of getting across that, you know, there there aren't always rights and wrongs. You know, people just have different perspectives. You know, my dad really, I think, stresses hard work and, and the sort of joy that hard work can bring. Um, I think my mom really um, works for, works to sort of instill in us social... Uh, justice ideals and, and my stepdad as well um, and and I and, and I think my stepmom came into our lives a little bit later and and really kind of sees us all for who we are and, and and encourage us to have a lot of fun in in the midst of everything that we're doing it's an incredible thing I feel very lucky let's move on to your second song choice now tell us about this one so the second song is from uh, the postal service and it's called such great heights and this um album came out when i was dating my now wife um and we were dating long distance 
And the Postal Service was actually, uh, first of all, the sound is just uh, amazing. It has this sort of ethereal sound to it. The album was actually made by two artists who were in different places and mailed tapes back and forth to, to, to make the, the album. My wife found it and started listening to it and told me about it. And so this song always makes me think of, of her. that was a postal service with such great heights our guest today is neurologist dr james berry and james i loved the introduction you gave to that song as it shows how one great piece of music can ignite the passion and form a bond between two people tell us a bit more about your wife Anne, and and the role she's played in your life well you know we met in medical school and we we dated long distance as i said and we, since we met when we were long distance, it always felt like it, it wasn't sort of the long distance relationship where we were pining away for somebody else. It was really um, this wonderful addition to what I was doing. You know, I had my full day and then we would talk on the phone and it, it was, I always felt like I had everything that, that I would have had anyway in life and this wonderful growing relationship. And um, she is, you know, incredibly smart, really motivated, really driven uh, by her work um, and I think always pushes me to be better at my work and 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 then we have a wonderful time together and we've got an incredible family now um, and she's a an amazing mother and uh, in addition to doing all the other things that she does and and I'm just amazed by her sounds like an amazing partnership and you've got a family now as you say three children how well would you say you took to parenthood initially I loved it uh, right from the start I will say that you know I was ex super excited to, to be a dad and and I think the moment I met my my daughter from the like immediately when I saw her I was incredibly excited and then very very nervous very very nervous about <laughs> everything and I, I was talking to, to my wife and I said, oh, my goodness, um, you know, I'm nervous about whether we can whether I can change a diaper right and whether we're going to get her and, you know, support her in school and whether she's going to have a good time at the prom. And, and what, you know, <laughs> my wife said, slow down. <laughs> That's maybe too much to worry about all, all at once. Um, but it was this sort of, um, you know, huge responsibility and just elation all at once. And and it's just been a joy since then. I love it. So what kind of father would you say you are and would your children agree with that? <laughs> um, I, well, I really try to be uh, supportive and um, encouraging, um, but also try to try to help them learn the right path for things. And I also really try to sort of have my kids learn that they can depend on one another. I, I think that they would agree with parts of that. I think they'd agree with parts of that. <laughs> I was going to ask, actually, what your main <laughs> hopes and aspirations for your children as they move forward into the world? I hope that they, I hope they find happiness. Um, I hope they feel successful. Um, and I hope they live, you know, who they are. 
And James, work is evidently very important to you. But when you have time to switch off, no child-related duties, where are you happiest? I really love to be in the yard doing yard work and gardening, which is something I learned from my dad, except he's brilliant at it and I putter about, but I, I enjoy that. <laughs> um, you know, I if I have time, I like to do little woodworking projects as well. Um, not to make things that are beautiful, but just to make things. I think we it's it's so easy to sort of consume and consume um, in our world that it's nice to actually build things and make things, um, even just for ourselves. So I, I really like that. But I also, you know, like to binge a good TV show as well. Oh, we all do. <laughs> and what about vacations? Are they important to you? And, and how do vacations for you as a family compare to what you experienced in your childhood? Yeah, I mean, I, I love to travel. I think the first time I was outside of the U.S., I think might have been when I was in college. And then I really had a travel bug and traveled a lot um, then as, as much as I could, really until we had kids. And my wife and I took some fabulous vacations where we, they always had to be sort of budget vacations, but we'd, we'd, we'd travel to wherever we could around the globe. Um, and, and um, you know, even with the kids, we've been able to come to Spain and visit Kristen and, and visit Korea, where my wife is from originally. Um, but we also go every year to Cuddyhunk, where my dad has a house, which is a small island off of Cape Cod in Massachusetts. And um, Kristen comes with her kids and my other sister, Kate, comes with her kids. And that's kind of the highlight vacation of the year for, for my kids and for our family, I think, to really get together and be with extended family in a beautiful place. I'd love to be able to go to a, a place called Cutty Hunk. <laughs> that is just the best name I've heard. I'm going to go. I'm going to find some time in my life. Um, my final question to you, James, before I, I pass the mic over to your sister, Kristen. Um, words of wisdom. Do you have any uh, for your 18-year-old self? Oh, boy. I think I'd, I think I'd tell myself to um, do the hard work. <clears throat> Pardon me. Do the hard work, um, but not worry so much about how things are going to turn out. I think that's what I'd tell myself. Sounds to me like very good advice. Tell us about your third song choice now. Um, so my third song choice is from The weekend. It's Blinding Lights, uh, which is about as pop a pop song as you can get um, and, and maybe doesn't describe my all my musical taste. But uh, this is a song that reminds me of family time during the pandemic. Really, it was a, a sort of a, uh, maybe not sort of, it was a really nerve-wracking time and um, that summer, we would pile into the van and go to the beach where we could be socially distanced and outside from other people. And the kids would ask for this song over and over and over. And it has a, the themes of it are actually not so bright, but it has a sort of a, a bright poppy feeling. And, and um, it just reminds me of that summertime, difficult time in the world, but, but we could, you know, we could have a little happiness and safety together. And 
that was The Weekend with Blinding Lights, chosen by our guest today, neurologist Dr. James Berry, the brother of my co-presenter, Kristen Berry. And Kristen, I have to ask you, because it's now uh, your turn to take the mic. Did you learn anything new from my chat with James? Well, I, I did. Two, two things stuck out to me. One was the, the story that James shared with us about the student, and, and I don't remember necessarily hearing that story. I've heard other things that perhaps motivated him to, mm. to go on to medical school. And, and of course I was around for a lot of those, you know, those times of deciding what he was going to do. And then the other one was that, that I thought, wow, you know, I really remember. So I, I, I agree with him on how he sees our family and, mm. and I agree with him on, on so much of, of, you know, what it was like when we were little and and so it must be lovely to have shared those memories yeah, again. Yeah, I guess that was it. It was emotional in a way, James. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and and the one thing I'd share is that this summer we had an opportunity to go back to Aurora together, James and I. And we looked at our old house and the lake and the park we played at, and and um, it does. I mean, those things they they're they're big in our memories, mm. you know, and and in informing who we are. And that's what this, this interview is really about, right? Um, so, James, I'm going to ask you some questions and put you on the spot. Sounds good. So, so I guess the one thing that I'd ask first of all is, is Carrie mentioned that you're up to a team of about 144, 140, how many people? It's about 140, yeah. Okay. So about 140 people. I mean, that's a very large team. And I was wondering sort of if you could break down the ways that you're leading at this point, because you actually have lots of roles. You're, you, you are in clinic with patients, uh, and then you also are doing research. Could you tell us a little bit about your different leadership roles? Yeah, so um, I, yeah, I'm an active clinician, and um, I have about seven or eight colleagues who see patients in our ALS clinic. Um, and um, three or four years ago, we, we became a division in and of ourselves. So within the Department of Neurology at Mass General Hospital, we became a division because we'd grown so much and, and our, you know, our, our faculty was big enough that, that it deserved its own sort of designation. There are also basic scientists who are working specifically on ALS, and, and um, we try to marry those two. So, you know, part of what I do is really run that clinic and, and make sure that the experience of the clinic is um, what we want it to be. And it's a multidisciplinary clinic, so it's a little different than, you know, the way many practitioners work. So we rely heavily on nurses and physical therapists and speech therapists and occupational therapists and respiratory therapists and psychologists and social workers um, all to kind of come together to the same space and, and, and help uh, people with ALS. So there's a lot of there's a lot of organization to, to go on there and and um, uh, you know and and then you know what we call our patient service coordinators, which is the, the you know kind of the, the clinic coordinator, the person that you know someone that a patient calls and talks to first, who makes appointments and kind of keeps all the wheels on. All of those pieces have to be working in order for that experience to be um, optimal for for patients. So that's one place where where we you know really try to create a, a good experience. And we have an absolutely amazing team. And, and so that's, you know, most of that is quite simple. And it's really just the logistics. Okay. And then the other part of it is is the research part. And we have a, um, a very big research group as well. We call it the Neurological Clinical Research Institute. And um, we have 
we're sort of divided into various groups. So we have a, a data group and a systems group, um, which is the information systems uh, team. We have a project management team and a site coordination team. And we all kind of come together to run multi-center clinical trials that are, that are going on across the country. So you wear many hats, really, yeah. right? And, and I know this also because I'm <laughs> privileged enough to talk to you, have, have conversations with you about your different collaborations. And so I find it sim always very interesting to hear about those collaborations and, and how you get people working together. And I think, you know, I'm curious about your leadership style. You know, because one of the themes I'm hearing in 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 these is is that you need to have people who are very different working together towards a goal. What would how would you describe your leadership style? I think of myself as a facilitator mostly. Okay. Um, try to bring people. You know, if I can bring together the best people and and sort of stay out of the way while they solve the problem, that's that's sort of the best and create an environment where they can solve the problem or make that progress that we need to make, or uh, that to me is really kind of the ideal. And, you know, my my mentor, Merit Sikovic, um, is the chair of the department now, and um, I've been working with her for at least 10 years. Um, and, you know, I think she has a, a very collaborative spirit. Um, she really gives credit where credit is due, and, and those are things that both resonated from me and that I've learned so much from over the years. Well, that's amazing, and I and I think that you know all of your successes um, really are, are can attest and they show that we teams are motivated by those things, by collaborative styles, by getting the best out of people, getting out of people's ways to let them do do what they do. Um, and unfortunately, I think leaders don't don't do enough of that, or of giving you know appreciation and 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 recognition. So I, I think that's great that you know your mentor taught you that, that you experienced it and that you're able to pass that along. What would you say, you know, I agree, you are, you're humble to a fault, almost. <laughs> As your sister, I want to know about your successes. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and, you're, and you're not super open about them. But I'm going to put you on the spot to ask you, what do you think you're really good at when it comes to leadership? I, I think I'm good at listening to people. Maybe not. It's a hard thing to do. So maybe not in every case, but I, but I really, I really, it's easy for me to sort of focus on trying to listen to people. I think I'm relatively good at trying to um, convey the mission to people, and I think it's really important that people have the background for why we're doing the job we're doing because I think that that allows them to invest and do the best that that bring the best they can to the table. And I think I'm, you know, I think I'm, I think I'm fairly good at giving, you know, opportunities to people to, to shine. Amazing. Amazing. Because as, you know, somebody who works with um, creating and, and supporting high performing teams, we know that listening is one of the biggest skills that you can, you can bring as a leader. In fact, much more than talking, much more than having the answers. And the other one is having a common purpose and having a purpose in general, something deeper. Simon Sinek talks about, you know, the golden circle. I don't know if you're familiar with, with his idea of the golden circle. Um, and he talks about the why, how, and what. And very often we talk about what we do. And if we start with our why, it is much more motivational. And, and essentially that's what you just said is that that's, that's how you try to get people on board, right? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's so important, and I and I think if everybody feels like they're a part of that mission, then you're really doing your job as a leader. I, I will say, I think it's harder in the time of COVID. I, I just think when you know much of our staff is working remotely, we're not seeing each other, we don't see each other in the hallway. Mm-hmm. I think you know, and, and and ultimately at the center of what we do, whether it's research or or patient care, is an alliance with people with ALS. I have continued to see I continue to see people with ALS through the pandemic, although much of that became video visits, um, and and you know the nurses did in some cases, but many of the people who were very connected to to people with ALS on a day to day basis weren't seeing them or talking to them directly as much, and you know finding that mission, keeping connected to that mission, has been something really important. And how do you feel uh, sort of leading that you, you've been able to help people to, to find a way to connect to their, their purpose and their mission in these changing times? It's still something that we think about a lot in our leadership calls. It's something we spend a lot of time talking about. Mm. Um, you know, what is the, what is the workplace going to look like um, mm-hmm. over the next one, two, three years, but also in that new environment, which is going to remain partly remote, at least for the foreseeable future, how do we continue to connect people to mission? Uh, that's a that's a part of our agenda at every leadership call that we have right now. That's so interesting because, you know, in the work that I'm that I'm doing with with organizations, of course, most of these organizations are, are businesses with with different kinds of missions and purposes than than yours. You're we're talking about a hospital here and we're talking about patients. And one thing I find interesting is that you were doing, you know, video visits with with patients long before COVID happened. Isn't that right? Yeah, we started about 10 years ago doing video visits, really motivated by um, a request from people with ALS themselves. Mm-hmm. And then you know, thinking deeply about about how we cared for people. ALS is, you know, one of the things that it does is makes mobility difficult. And so it makes it, makes it hard for people to seek the care that they need. And so that was sort of a tool that came into being that we could use. And, you know, right there, James, you go back to the fact that you listened. You listened. It wasn't about you guys. It was about what, in this case, I mean, your 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 client base is are the patients, and they're they're the they're the focus. And you listened to them, and and were able to innovate as a result. I think that's that's a great lesson for for any organization. You know, you've gone through a process with with preparing for this um, this interview about um, a process of reflecting on your life story. And I'm wondering, you know, we've heard a little bit about some impactful events, but I'm wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on sort of important, maybe even challenging times in your life that have influenced uh, you to take the path you've taken and to, to, to take on the roles you're taking on now. Yeah, well, you know, I, I did talk a little bit about the student I had who, who had cancer and um you know who who actually ultimately wrote me a recommendation for medical school oh wow i think i think i I think back on my application process for medical school and i think they must have thought i would didn't have any idea what i was doing because i I really (laughs) didn't um you know had a student who wrote a recommendation letter for me it was just you know i hadn't done all the prerequisite classes that i needed to do it was really you know (laughs) amazing that i'm here that moment you know or sort of visiting her in the hospital was was a a big moment when when we were young you had cancer yeah and 
um, um, I think that was informative. It wasn't, you know, I didn't, some people will say, well, that happened. And then I knew from that moment forward, I wanted to be in medicine, but, and I don't think it was like that for me, but that was a, you know, that was a big part of, of my, of, you know, of my growing up as well. And I, you know, your, your, your doctor, Doc Nock. Yes. Really had a big impact on our family. He really did. Yeah. How, what was the impact he made on you? Um, uh, I think. Hmm. There's a lot there. Yeah, just give me a second. Um, he was this light. He yeah. was. And, I, you know, so he was, he was, um, he was a, uh, well, you know, in some ways, you know, he prescribed the medications. Um, and that was obviously key, you know, that was the key part of what he did. But he was also funny mm-hmm. and positive. Yeah. I, you know what's funny? I don't know if I ever met him. Really? Yeah. yeah. This is amazing so, because as I'm listening to this, I happen to know that you are one of the funniest people I know. You really are funny. And um, and actually I have here on my, my questions that I was thinking of is how, how do you feel that sense of humor plays into to your role as, as leader, but I would say uh, especially as, as a physician? Well, I, I mean, I have to say I think um, I mean I I really do value humor in life. I think it <laughs> helps us through really difficult times, and I think that's true. As a leader, one has to be a little a little cautious about it because often mm. the easy humor is is um, not uplifting. Mm. But I th- at its heart, humor allows us to look at things from a slightly different perspective. And that's, that's really important. It's important, you know, when, when we're facing serious illness, Mm -hmm. but it's also important when we're trying to get through a challenge as a group. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think it does have its place for sure. It's so interesting because you've, you've used so many of the words that people who really do a lot of work around empathy, like Brene Brown is, is a big name in that at, at this point, but um, a lot of the words that they use, perspective, perspective taking, listening, and, and I think empathy, I just imagine that what you're talking about here is having empathy. Yeah, and you're talking about even how you use humor, that it can be a big tool, but that you want to be empathetic or, or, or you know, aware of, of the impact it might have on others. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about about empathy in your role i think it's incredibly important in the care of of people with well in care in care of anybody i was going to say in in care of people with with serious illness but you know anytime someone comes to the to to see a physician they're you know they've taken the time out of their day this is a big enough problem that Mm -hmm. they've taken the time out of their day to to go and seek help and so i think it's really you know anytime in that relationship i think it's incredibly important how is it maybe even more, more important with an illness such as ALS? 
Yeah, I mean, we don't yet have cures for ALS. And I think to, to diagnose and follow and treat people for a disease that we can't cure means that one of our biggest tools has to be helping people deal with their, their situation. And certainly no one person can do it. And that's why we have a multidisciplinary team and why we have, you know, such an incredible team. I think all of us have to have to take that position of, you know, we're really here to listen and to guide and, you know, and to provide perspective and, and help people really set goals and achieve those goals. I mean, that's, that's really how we talk about it and think about it. And that's amazing. So that's with your patients and I'm wondering, and their families, I would imagine. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and then, so on the other side of things, what has been more of a struggle for you in leadership? What has made you feel more confident or what has challenged you? Well, I think there are constant, constant challenges in, in leadership that are um, always sort of stretching me. And I, I think, you know, even the things that I say, oh, well, I feel like I, you know, I feel like those are the things I'm, I'm better at. I have to say, I, I still um, see ways that I can improve all of those things. Um, communication being, I think, one of the key ones, uh, you know, I think that's, it's just so central to what you do as a leader that I'm always looking for ways to improve communication. And, and actually, I think when you talk about, you know, a, a bigger team and sort of connecting people to mission and, um, you know, I think communication actually really is central. We hear a lot from people on the team about sort of how do we manage, how do we manage communication? We have email. We all, we all send emails to one another. That volume of email has gone up and up and up. Um, I feel that other people on the team feel that. So I, I think managing that is a for the group is is remains a, a huge challenge. You know, I think finding ways to keep all of the things that I'm doing organized has been you know, really important for me, and may, <laughs> maybe doesn't play to my strength. And so I've had really <laughs> find find ways to um, to sort of make that work. And I'll you know. Sometimes it's it's finding other people. You know, I have a wonderful admin who helps with my schedule, or I would be completely lost. Um, yeah. So you know, I've had to find those tools. Well, I think once again, what I hear is is the idea that it takes a team, right? And and that as a leader, it sounds like you you really understand that you can't be good at everything. And like you said, that part doesn't play to your strengths, but others do. And so um, I think, you know, leaders could definitely learn from what you're saying. All of us could learn from what you're saying is that we don't need to be able to do it all. <laughs> we can count on others and and they can count on us, right? That's one of the most fun things about, about leading is, is finding, getting people, when you can get people into a position where they can really shine, when that really works, it's so gratifying and so fun to see people really take off. That's amazing. And, and I love hearing that. I love hearing that. And, and, um, you know, in the work I do, I think, I think that's one of, one of the things I take great joy in as well. So I have one, one, one final question before we, we talk about your last song, which is, you know, before with Carrie, you talked about dreams and things that are, you know, still out there. And I'm wondering if you have any specific dream that is still, you still have to fulfill. 
I mean, I always divide that into, I, I think in my head, I divide that into kind of two categories. I want to find a cure for ALS. Okay. I mean, that, that is, it, it's my, in, in some ways, my motivation and, and, and hopefully the motivation for our team is so straightforward that it, 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 it almost seems, you know, silly. And, it, and, and some people will say that's ridiculous, but I, I don't think so at all. I think we can get there. And I think by doing that, we probably can cure other diseases too. So th that's sort of, that's, that is really the, the, the laser focus of, of what we do and what I do. I hear the passion. I hear the passion and, and it's, it's contagious. It really is. So can you tell us about your last song and then we'll close out. And, and before, before that, I'd like to just thank you so much for, for being here with us today. It's been wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, I've just had a, it's been wonderful. My last song is uh, John Coltrane, Like Someone in Love from the album Lush Life. And um, this is just a very personal song. I mean, I, I, it's sort of a standard jazz song that you hear and, and um, you know, like lots of songs in, in jazz, you know, different artists have their own take on it. And I heard this one when I was in college and I just, from the moment I heard it, there was just something sort of reached into my soul about the, especially the first 30 seconds of the song. The song can be, some, some versions of it are a little sappy. This one is really John Coltrane starts it out alone and, and there's just this soulfulness to what he does. And I find it really just calming, so calming and restorative to listen to. And I, um, I just think of it as a very personal song for me. <laughs> 